Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho and co-host Weston Williams. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Call us live on air and get your opera voice heard, 847-866-9687. All right, tonight we're joined live via phone by librettist Mark Campbell. If you've heard any of the operas like Silent Night, The Evolution of Steve Jobs, As One, Dinner at Eight, Burke and Hare, The Shining, The Manchurian Candidate, you've heard Mark's words. His latest collaboration with composer Kevin Putz is the opera Elizabeth Cree, playing this weekend at Chicago Opera Theater. Mark joins us inside the huddle to talk about how he got into the story of a 19th century serial killer. But first, Lyric Opera of Chicago recently announced its 2018-2019 season a few weeks ago. We tell you what's unique about the lineup next year. And at 9.40 p.m., it's the two-minute drill. Everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land and our hot takes on the man. This show is just loaded gentlemen oliver camacho how are you i'm so glad to be back um in person i didn't die for those of you who are keeping track from last week i almost did but uh as i (laughs) said if uh if i were going to die it would be uh hopefully during uh while i was talking to our our beautiful audience what a way to go yeah Exactly. Uh, well, we would have blamed Weston Williams for your death. You yeah, know, that would be fair. That'd be fair. I was I was manning the uh, the reins and uh, not driving the car though. So I mean, I, in a court of law, I don't think I could have been you know gotten for manslaughter. But who knows? Due process. Yeah. I have to say this: that um, George, you seem to really relish saying Weston Williams' name. Like you really linger. It's on like all a top this. five radio name. Yeah, of yeah it is. I mean, yeah. I mean that's that's why I was named that. You know, my parents are like this. This child is going to be on the radio. He's have a big he radio needs career. Some, he needs some alliteration in his name. It's so, 1999 or whatever. What year was it? 1993. I'm not that young. <laughs> uh, there wasn't a Winter Olympics in 1999. I think there was one in 1998. And of course, there's a Winter Olympics now. Oliver Camacho, please tell me that the figure skating is your favorite sport. It is. It really is the one that relates most, I think, to what we do as opera singers. You know, go, go on. All those little, all those little <laughs> details, and all the athleticism, and all the art, and like the athletic, you know, skaters versus the, you know, the um, the very artistic skaters, yeah. and like the idea of ice dancing versus you know right. the competitive figure skating. And don't forget their beautiful voices. You know, yes, when, yes. You know, if they fall down, they scream out that high note. You know, it's it's great. And well, I have to say that, like, 
there's this gay um, American figure skater who's 28, which is old for figure skater. His name is Adam Rippon, and uh, he helped deliver the bronze medal for the American team. And I have to say, like, his interview yesterday um, on, on NBC was one of the gayest things I've ever seen. I mean, it made me so happy. He was so unabashedly gay, and it was great. I loved it. The uh, woman who sang the Olympic hymn, Sumi Huang, who's 32, is a member of the Fest Ensemble at the Opera House in Bonn. Oh, neat. Yeah, she had lots of vibrato. I was surprised. It was a very, very solid operatic voice. You so know. you watched, did you watch the opening ceremonies? I then? watched it on delay. I mean, I think all of us watched it on delay because sure. it happened, uh, you know, in the morning or something and they they, they play it at uh, in prime time. So NBC controls how you enjoy the Olympics. <sighs> there are so many sports that have already happened and we see them supposedly live in prime time. Oh, it's all lies. And I live with a Frenchman who is so frustrated by this because he's watching all the results come in, you know, online and then we haven't even seen it yet on Time the opening so. ceremonies are like the dream project for any opera director you because think? it can oh be so abstract. I feel like that'd be the, the, the nightmare. The scale, no, man, no, the scale is people. immense. Yeah, that's true. And it's it's the dream. It's I'm, bigger than Aida. Yes. Oh yeah. I mean, it could be. I mean, it depends on how uh, how much you're holding back when you're directing Aida. But yeah. you know, I mean, that's just me. Uh, you know, I just like to throw millions of dollars and you know the resources of a whole country behind it personally. But you know, to each to each their own. As full, well, you should. All right, let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. That's what you're listening to, WNUR 89.3 FM, George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Weston Williams in the house. Lyric Opera of Chicago announced its 2018-2019 season a couple weeks ago. All the information is available on their website as well as ours, operaboxscore.com. Oliver Camacho, where should we begin? Well, in I want to say that, this that you know, if now that we're like in our third season, it seems like we are falling into a pattern as the broadcast uh, of talking about these season releases, mm. and it's definitely very exciting to to hear about them, and um, especially as an opera goer here in Chicago, um, I love knowing what's what's happening. It's very exciting, but uh, we I think we need to mix up a little bit, and to that end. Uh, starting from this episode, from episode, what, we're in episode 1005 right now? Uh, that sounds right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yep. yeah um, starting this week, pr- going forward, we are now going to um, rate uh, season announcements on the Doug Dotson diversity scale. <laughs> the Doug Dotson <laughs> Memorial <laughs> Diversity Scale? <laughs> the Doug Dotson Diversity and Originality Scale. So Doug Dotson, uh, co-host of Opera Now podcast, you might have heard of it has created a uh, algorithm for scoring uh, season announcements based on their uh, you know dedic- uh, their contributions to making opera more diverse and original and here is a rundown of the scoring system you get 10 points for each show with a female composer 10 points for each show with a composer of color five points for each show written before 1830 excluding Mozart's uh, famous four operas Five points for a show written before 1750. Five points for a show written after 1950. Five points for a show written since the year 2000. Five additional points. Uh, five additional points for a world premiere. Five points for a second production, not the second showing of a first production. Five points for each opera in a language other than Italian, German, French, or English. Three points for an announced woman conductor. Three points for an announced conductor of color. I don't know if Latino counts as a color, but I'm going to say yeah. 
Uh, one point for a singer of color announced in the press release. Five points for each wild card, such as something mentioned in the press release as a first or something different than mm. usual. Worth noting, like an American premiere, a modern premiere, trans artist, uh, Muslim artist, uh, an exceptionally young composer, something like that. And you can also lose points, right? You can lose points. Yeah. You lose points. Ten points if you program Bohem, Carmen, or Traviata. <laughs> <laughs> five. Oh, dear. You lose five oh, points. Oh, dear. Uh, for two out of the three, five additional <laughs> points if you uh, if you program Bohem and Carmen or Bohem and Travis in the same season. Uh, ten points lost if you uh, program all three. Additional <laughs> points if you program all three. Man. Five points lost for any Wagner because <laughs> F that guy. <laughs> <laughs> lose five points for a composer represented more than once in the same season. Uh, lose ten points for anything that is an obvious money-saving gimmick, such as we're doing it with all young artists, or we're doing this without a chorus, etc. I just think I think the Dodson scale, yeah, which I'm going to call this it is, is going to be tough. I just realized this is that brilliant. I, I have to rescore this season. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I can already say that right off the bat, uh, we're going to lose some points because we have Bohem and uh, Traviata in the okay. same season, yes. which is minus ten for each of them plus an extra not minus five <coughs> minus for 25. two, which is a pretty big hit right off the bat. Okay, um, so that's minus 25 points yeah, is, yeah, we're starting yeah, with yeah. as a deficit. <laughs> the, and we're yeah. losing about five for Wagner, so we're at minus 30. Oh, yeah, game. yeah. Oh, done. that's a good okay, point. Let's, yeah. Now let's start racking up the points. Oh, no, no, here, here's the question. Um, on, on this uh, highly scientific scale, yeah. it says minus five points uh, for any Wagner, but we have minus 20 if it's a ring cycle. Are we counting Siegfried as... as Part of the ring cycle is at minus 20 or well, just I think minus one. 20 if it's the whole ring cycle. Okay, I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. Okay. Yeah. Got to clarify the rules yeah. for our listening audience Fair here. Fair enough. Okay, yeah. so let's start with the, the beginning of the season. We have 10 minutes to get through this, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on to your hats. We have Bo- Bohem mm. uh, conducted by, I want to say, Anthony, uh, Anthony, not Anthony Freud, uh, Sir Andrew Davis. Is that right? Uh, Bohem is being conducted by. Uh, oh, Hindoyan. It's, it's conducted by Domingo Hindoyan, who is yeah. the husband of Sonia Yoncheva, and he's Venezuelan. So they get one point for diversity there. Yes. Uh, so that brings us to minus twenty nine. <laughs> we're doing so. Um, we're doing pretty yeah. good. Oh, Actually, so sorry, it's three points for a conductor of color. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. So, so minus yeah. twenty seven, and then Credit Daniel Denise is Musetta, so she's mm-hmm. yeah, she's yeah. bizarrely colored. So that's minus twenty six. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, Next production is Ida Mineo, which is not one of the Mozart four. So we gain five points for that. So we're at minus 21. And Janai Brugger is in the cast. Mm-hmm. So we gain right, a point yeah, for that. So we're yeah. at negative 20. And I love Janai Brugger, as we know. She's, yeah. I'm a big fan. Uh, next production is Siegfried, which is the Wagner. Uh, we're losing that some hurts. points on that we, one. We already counted those points. Yeah. But we gain two points because Eric Owens and Samuel yeah. Yoon are in right. the cast. I'm very excited to see Samuel Yoon. So we're now at negative 18. Uh, the next production in November, December is Trovatore. Uh, oh wow, we're losing more points for that because that's two Verdi's. That's the that's the first of two Verdi's, right? Yeah, right. So. Yeah, they've already. Traviata is the big loser, though. But uh, but uh, Trovatore, I, th- I believe, does hurt us a little bit. Plus, so that's this, another... this Trovatore production, it's it's been done. I mean, I remember seeing it at Lyric before. Oh uh, uh, yeah. I I feel like if you can see if you can remember the production in recent memory, oh, there should be that's another like the entire lyric season. So um, <laughs> so we're at negative twenty three, but we gain a point for Russell Thomas. So that's just negative twenty two. Russell Thomas mm-hmm. as Manrico is awesome. Yeah. 
And oh, uh, the lyric debut of Tamara Wilson, which I'm very excited about, a great voice. And then Jamie Barden comes to sing uh, Azucena. Uh, that brings us to Cendrillon, which I think we don't gain or lose anything. <laughs> that's for, a uh, wash. Mass <laughs> right? Which yes. I think that's how most people feel yeah. about that opera. I think, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Quick oh shout goodness. out there. Uh, Francesco Miliotto, the conductor, is sharing the duties with Sir Andrew Davis on that. That is a huge coup for him, and so I could not be happier. For those who don't know, Francesco Miliotto is one of the, is one of the local, really well-respected uh, conductors and opera coaches who works with a lot of Lyric and COT and other ventures here in the city. And it's so great to see him yeah. get a chance to be uh, on the big stage. So he's splitting it. He's doing uh, half the run or, or something? He's Correct. doing one performance. Okay. Uh, oh, just one performance. Yeah. But that's a start, you know? We all got to start somewhere. Yeah. Uh, Electra Returns, the same production we saw. Is it the McVicker? Is that what it is, the production? Uh, no, the Electra production is... Yeah, it's the McVicker production. Um... It is. Thank yes. you. Yes. Uh, and I'm really excited about Elsa Vandenhever, but some people are excited about Nina Stemma singing. I would be thrilled to I see like Nina, Nina Stemma. I think that's great. And Donna uh, Runnicles is conducting that as well. Do you think this is the second McVicker production in this season? Do you think points should be lost for that? Uh, we need to keep points here. So right now we're still at negative 20. <laughs> I would argue that there <laughs> should. Negative 22. So let's let's try to build some points let's here. Let's try to see if we can break uh, even. Traviata, we already discounted the, the point loss for that. And it has... Uh, a very, for me, underwhelming cast. Uh, the return of Albina Shagamirotova, Germont of Delkolucic, and the lyric debut of a tenor I've never heard of before named Giorgio Berugi. Michael Christie conducting. I'm sure it's the same production. That I don't know. If it's now, let's, let's help everybody out here. We had three points for each announced woman conductor. For Traviata, the director, Erin Arbus, is a woman. So can oh. we give three points? Yeah, let's, I think so. Let's. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we are now at uh, negative 19. Yeah. And then uh, we have Ario Dante, which gets uh, five points for being before 1830. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. So that's negative 14, uh, mm -hmm. starring Alice Coote as Ario Dante. And like I'm so happy that uh, Yeston Davies yeah. is returning to the lyric yeah. um, cool. as Polonesso. And that will be conducted by uh, my friend Harry Bickett. Okay. Now, in the Lyric Unlimited slot, this is where this company is going to pick up some points. We can rack up a couple of points because uh, they are doing uh, an auxiliary opera called An American Dream by Jack Perla and Jessica Murphy Moo, mm -hmm. which was very, it was like written in 2015 or something. So we get points for it being new. That's another five points. So we're at minus nine. And uh, there's a there's a woman 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 composer, mm -hmm. right? Or woman mm -hmm. librettist. Uh, woman librettist, yeah. So is that three points? I, I should really... Let's yeah. let's say let's well it was ten points for a female composer. We're about to talk to Mark Campbell, so we better make the composers and the librettists the same. <laughs> okay. Should we should we give ten yes. points for yeah. a female yes. librettist? So we're there? at plus one. With wow! This hey, there we and go. I haven't, looked at the, I haven't looked at the cast for this, but hopefully there's some trans person in there it's, so we can. Like, well, the cast it, well, is not published on the website. <laughs> so please it's, it's let there be a trans. Say, yeah. Uh, how often have you heard that said? And then they're doing West Side Story, which I feel like we should, that should make us lose all of our points. Yeah, I mean, that that feels like a obvious uh, money, I mean, yeah. maybe not a money saving, but yeah. definitely. No, well, that's, and they're off season, so we'll just yeah. not even talk yeah. about that. So, and, well, so Lyric okay. Opera pulls out the score of one. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, that, that's the, positive. That's a plus yeah. one. That's. Yeah. For a mainstream opera company in the U.S., sadly, yeah. that's a pretty good score. Yeah. Um, you know, as far as these things go, it's very. It would be similar to um, Anthony Freud's golf game, probably. Like you know, he's one over par. I, uh, 
So now that we know the rules here, the, the upcoming season announcements, we're still waiting on the Met, obviously. Uh, we'll be able to score those more quickly. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm excited about um, Danielle Denise and Janai Brugger mm -hmm. and Russell Thomas and Justin Davies. Those are, those are totally my singers. I think mm -hmm. we should have like a running uh, top score list for this. Yeah. And have uh, just like a long running thing. We should put something up on the website um, or something where you just have a... Yeah, like a bracket or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'll go back and score San Francisco and L.A. Did we get any other announcement? Did we do Seattle yet? Or? Well, Dallas is out. We haven't okay. talked about it. Um, I'm now try I saw another announcement was out as well today. Atlanta Opera is mm. out too, so we could. So we what are you excited about, Weston, in this season? Electra. Yeah, you love Strauss. me some Electra. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, you you can't go wrong with Electra. Obviously, it's a, a nasty role on the singers, um, which is part of the fun as someone who doesn't have to sing it. Yeah. Um, also, a good one for uh, female voices. Because um, there's, there's, how many men are in that opera? Like, yeah, there's just, arrest and there's uh, exit, whatever his name that, is. That that's it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, that that one, I mean, obviously that one, uh, I'm I'm very excited about. And also the the new opera, American Dream. I'm always excited to see something new, particularly for uh, uh, a larger company. Um, you know, it's just it's just great. I, I don't I don't know anything about it. I don't know anything about the composer. I don't know anything about the librettist. So I kind of want to go in cold. And uh, hopefully uh, it'll have it, knock my, have it knock my socks off. So It's interesting uh, that that show, American Dream, the Lyric Unlimited project, just has two performances which are being done at the Harris Theater. I was surprised by that because this season the Lyric Unlimited show is at the Athenaeum, smaller hmm. than the Harris. And I don't know if there's just two performances or if it's more than two. So a Fellow Travelers? Yeah. A Fellow Travelers, thank you, the Gregory Spears piece. Uh, it, it feels like an even smaller venue would serve this type of programming well. So, I mean, obviously, I'm definitely going to go to the to the show. Maybe it's just the technical requirements. Possible. The Possible. Could, it, could, even, the be, theater, could yeah. even be demand. Uh, one could hope, you know, uh, getting a bunch of uh, new people in to a new production. Uh, maybe they need, <laughs> they need more space to squeeze in everybody, which would be great. Yeah, you just, but the thing is, like, you, just, you need more performances spread apart to get the word of mouth out. And I, I feel like just two shows in a 1,500-seat house like the Harris, that seems to me to be tricky. As you say, let's, right. let's hope the thing is packed. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, well, absolutely. I'm going to close this by saying that this coming season relies less upon the Ryan Opera Center alumni as much as they are beloved and some of them are amazing, like Matthew Polanzani, who will be starring in Itamaneo. Uh, 2017-18 season had a lot of alumni in it, and uh, they're yeah. less so in 18-19, which I think is a good yeah. move. Yeah, yeah. Final thought from uh, Weston and... Uh, Oliver. I mean, you got plus one. You got a good see. I think there's some good ones to see coming up. I'm really excited to uh, go to all of them except maybe Bohem for the 500th time, you know. <laughs> but, you know, you know you're, you're going to have your Bohems. You're going to have your War Horses. Uh, I think ultimately it's going to be a pretty good season um, to uh, for the Lyric. And I think it all fits in with kind of the... But there's not really any surprises. It all fits in with kind of the patterns you've been seeing from the Lyric for the past couple years, certainly. Right, um, yeah. When Ario Dante and Sandrione are your riskiest shows in your main season. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will be interested to see um, how they pull off the handle, though, because uh, I, I don't know if... Do they often bring out period instruments and stuff for, oh, for that? No, but they get usually Harry Bickett to play in the pit. Oh, okay. The pit, and he's, okay. he's better at 
you know, controlling the lyric orchestra and making them play down. Raining them in. And they usually bring in, <laughs> they bring in a thurible or something like that to add to the continuous effect. Yeah. To, to 440 or something, you know. I like to call him the hardest working librettist in showbiz. Mark Campbell joins us live via phone to talk words, words, words. That's up next only on Opera Box Score and WNUR 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result, 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Welcome back to Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM. Librettist Mark Campbell is a Pulitzer Prize winner and a Grammy Award nominee. His latest works include Silent Night, As One, Burke and Hare, The Shining, The Manchurian Candidate, and most recently, Elizabeth Cree at Chicago Opera Theater, joining us from New York City. Mark Campbell, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, George. Thanks for having me. Uh, So, Elizabeth Cree opened on Saturday. I was there sitting in the house. How did it look from your point of view? Well, I was also in the house, and so we probably have the same view. (laughs) Um, it, It felt pretty good to me. Great, fantastic. Let, let me let's go right back to the very beginning. And this is a question from my dad, who I who came to the show with me, and and he said, "Well, I wonder about Mr. Campbell. Does every process begin the same way for him, where he has this idea, and he gets in touch with the right people, if they're producers or composers, or or do people come to you with ideas? How does it all begin?" Oh, it's every different project is, I mean, every, every different project is different. Um, in, you know, in the case of Elizabeth Cree, I read this book in 1995. Um, I really loved it. It stayed with me. The story stayed with me because I thought it was so fascinating. Um, Peter Ackroyd, as you may know, is one of um, England's favorite writers. Um, and the story stayed with me. And in 2012, Opera Philadelphia produced Silent Night. Um, they had us into their offices. They had Kevin put the composer and I into their offices and said, we really like you guys. We want to commission a chamber opera from you. I remembered this story and I suggested it and everyone fell for it. Um, <laughs> so, um, it kind of works that way. But, but the first opera I wrote with Kevin put was actually the idea of Dale Johnson at Minnesota Opera. He spoke to Kevin and said, I want you to look at this movie, Joy Noel. I think it might be a good opera. Kevin said, oh, yeah, that sounds great. And then they asked me if I would be interested in writing a libretto. And then I looked at it and I said, yeah, I think it could be good. And then Kevin and I met, got along really well. And um, it, it, every project is different. The, in the case of The Revolution of Steve Jobs, which is an opera I wrote for Santa Fe Opera this past summer, it was the idea of the composer Mason Bates to write an opera about Steve Jobs. So it comes from many different places. I certainly 
don't control it. Occasionally, I get to make suggestions, um, but but not always. You started uh, working, I think, as early as like 1995. Am I right? Would you say that was some of your first? Not in opera. No. No. Um, my first opera was actually in 2002. Full-length opera was in 2002. Volpone with John Musto for Wolf Trap mm. Opera. And since 2002, like, what has the moment been for you when you felt, uh, I'm really doing this now. Like, this is, this is for real. Like, I have really... <laughs> You're assuming that it's arrived. I, it, <laughs> oh, oh, please. <laughs> um, no, I would say the first opera I wrote... Um, Kim Whitman commissioned it at Wolf Chopper Opera, and everyone loves Kim Whitman from, you know, in the industry. We all love Kim. Um, She commissioned this opera with Wolf Trap, with John Musto. It premiered. I I thought, wow, this is my home. Um, I want to write this. Uh, Before that, I had written musical theater. I was a musical theater lyricist, um, strictly lyrics, and... Um, the first opera I wrote, I felt like this is the form I want to work with because it's a form that honors the composer. Uh, I don't think musical theater quite does that in the same way. How surprised are you that you look at your works like Silent Night and As One, these have really entered the American opera repertoire in under five years. Is is that surprising to you? Sure. Um, you never know what's going to enter the repertoire because um, you just write and you write stories that you hope uh, reach an audience. Um, I, Silent Night, um, I don't know. I mean, like, I remember seeing uh, the, the final dress rehearsal of Silent Night and whispering to my compadre at the time, Bill Murray, um, at Minnesota Opera, we were watching it. I, we were both against the wall because I don't like to sit down when I'm watching one of my operas. It's just too difficult. And we were leaning against the wall watching it. And I said, you know, Bill, if tonight I go home and a bus hits me and I die, at least I wrote Silent Night. Mm. Um, and you kind of think that a little bit about each piece, but you never know that it's going to enter the repertory. I never knew as one would be by July, we will have 22 productions of As One around the country, and there was one production in Berlin. And, you know, Chicago Fringe Opera did such a brilliant job of bringing it to Chicago. Um, we never knew that an opera about a transgender person would be this popular. Uh, but you, you write these things. You, I always write with my audience in mind. So um, I hope that it will reach a lot of people, but you never know. When we look at Elizabeth Cree, the latest collaboration between you and, and Kevin Putz, um, to go back to that Peter Aykroyd novel, I mean, what was it about this story? And obviously we don't want to spoil it here for those who will see it this weekend, but I mean, what was it about that story that was so compelling? I you? love that question because it makes me look back on that moment you know, we have moments in our lives where something just penetrates all the garbage we live with every day that says this is a story that needs to be told now. Now, this was in 1995. I have no idea why it burned inside my soul for so many decades. But I will say this, on a technical level, the story is told um, in, in four different perspectives. 
And I was really fascinated with that. Um, secondly, it, it's, its main character, Elizabeth Cree, is a fascinating person on every level. Um, those were two things that, that just, just said, this needs musical treatment. It's really hard to analyze why you think a certain piece uh, when you adapt something. And I've written a number of original works. But why a certain subject seems destined for music, you just do it, and it works, and sometimes it doesn't work. And then you go back and you go, well, maybe it wasn't destined for music. You were <laughs> wrong. Um, in the case of Elizabeth, Elizabeth Cree, um, it just it just spoke to me in a certain way. Now, you know, you saw it. It's a very grisly story. Um, but it's also extremely entertaining. And one of the first things I look for in a project is entertainment. And a lot of people find that a horrible, cheap word. Um, but as one would be a terrible opera if it were just dogmatic and saying, we're about transgender rights. The truth is that it's a human story. So I always look for a way that it, every member of an audience will connect to a story, and whether it's about a transgender person, you know, in the case of Elizabeth Cree, um, you know, um, there's a murderous individual involved. Um, it's all entertainment to me. We're talking to librettist Mark Campbell on Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM. To return to that idea of entertainment, Mark, a major theme of Elizabeth Cree, and really a framing device in a way, is this idea of the music hall. Mm -hmm. Why did that particular context make sense for this show? Well, first of all, that's what Peter Aykroyd wrote, you know, in the novel. But I think... If you look at Elizabeth Cree, one of the main themes of it that, that I think resonates so much now is what is, you know, what is fake news and what is reality? What is entertainment and what is really going on? We have an idiot in the White House now who is, was a reality TV star. How did that happen? You know, and so I think this opera really resonates with audiences for one of the reasons it does is because of that, because it's no longer about having morals. It's about having um, ambition and being famous. Um, that's one reason why that works. And I think the musical aspect of this opera really relates to that. Now, a lot of people have been asking me, like, where did you get that musical song from in Elizabeth Cree? And I said, I wrote it. One of the fun aspects of being a librettist working, you know, in opera, being a former lyricist and working in opera, is that I learned how to write lyrics. And it was so much fun for Kevin and I to write the four um, musical songs that are in the opera. But you would never have heard those songs back in the day, because they are more violent than, you know, they're written specifically for this story. Right. For example, the song about Bluebeard. Um, the British musical was very fascinated with the character of Bluebeard, but there is no song in the British musical sung by um, Bluebeard's housekeeper wondering what's going on in his um, cellar room. Right. Well, when I, and I noticed that uh, you're talking a lot about you know the entertainment and the uh, the, the the music halls and uh, and uh, just sort of the. Uh, 
art coming from the moment in which it's written. I, I was wondering if when you are doing, when you're writing a libretto, um, do you look back at sort of more those more recent uh, stories and styles for inspiration? Or do you ever find yourself going back to, say, a, a, an old opera libretto from way back when um, to kind of uh, guide you? Or, or is it, um, where, where, does that, uh, where does that come from in your artistic process? Um, I, oh, sorry. I, I, um, I, I, you must know something about me. I know nothing about old opera. Um, I'm really bad that way. Um, everything I ever learned about opera, I learned from Stephen Sondheim. So, <laughs> and, and just listening to Stephen Sondheim. Um, so forgive me. I know that your audience probably really hates hearing that. Um, but I don't know. I don't, I don't study old opera librettos to create new opera librettos. Um, in the case of this libretto, I did a lot of research on British music halls, um, and particularly the character of Dan Lino, who was a, a famous performer in the music hall. But I think any story that we create for opera now has to be original, even when it's an adaptation. And when you work with a composer as great as Kevin Foote, it's this story we're telling together, and it's a new story, and it's, it's not derivative. Um, I found it funny that a few critics said the opera is conventional, uh, but I would love to know where, where is the convention of telling four stories at once that dance <laughs> around in time that have a serial killer and a mystery at the heart of it. Um, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a funny thing. But fortunately, in Chicago, we've received pretty unanimously good reviews, which I hope the only thing I care about that is that it will increase ticket sales. There is nothing conventional about this show. I will say that yes. right now. It is complex. Well, you know, when you, when you face the idiotic New York critics, um, <laughs> and, you know, because we have this problem now, there's a little bit of a, I find it a really stupid cultural war in opera where if it's pretentious and it's boring, it must be good for us. It must be good for us. But if it's entertaining and even funny, well, then it's cheap and it's derivative of musical theater. My feeling is that if musical theater is helping opera sell more tickets, bring in an audience, reach an audience, then that's terrific. What is the, what is the harm in that? It, I mean, it relates to the future of this art form. Similarly, uh, Mark, you've been a mentor for librettists around the country, most recently at Washington National Opera with the American Opera Initiative. What kind of form does this mentorship take? Um, I've created uh, basically a libretto writing program for about four or five of the um, organizations that are training young librettists, mm. uh, which includes the American Opera Initiative, American Opera Project, American Lyric Theater, I work also at the University of Colorado New Opera Workshop Program. And when I teach libretto writing, the first thing I say is that I'm not an expert, but this has worked for me sometimes, sometimes <laughs> not. Um, and you should learn about storytelling. Um, I, teach, I do teach, teach a traditional um, method of learning what a story arc is, what a character, you know, character developing, uh, development <clears throat> and also to teach what opera requires um, in terms of text. Uh, in other words, fewer words are better than more words, and that, you know, always support 
a musical idea in opera because you cannot compete against music. Everyone in, in, who watches opera is here because of music, not because of your precious damn words. Um, and so there are many things that I teach um, in, in libretto writing, but I start first with the outline. Um, the outline is the key thing for writing libretto. If you create a solid outline, have all of your events lined up, know where your characters are, then the words start writing themselves. And um, I do teach that words are, themselves are not that important when it comes to writing opera because, you know, you, you present your first draft to the, to the composer and the composer can come back and say, hey, I'd like to uh, present this theme from scene one and put it into scene three. Would you mind rewriting these words to this music? And your answer should almost always be yes because the composer is the person who's guiding this opera. Mark, have you had any time in the last couple of days to watch <laughs> the Olympics? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, you know what? Where I was somewhere. Oh, I was in a hotel room ready um, with my friend Ivy, and we were about ready to go out on Friday night in Chicago, and she had it on in her room, and so I watched some of the opening, um, some of the opening ceremony. Uh, which was hilarious. It's so tacky. Um, <laughs> That's George's dream is to direct the opening ceremony. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, it would be mine, too. Can I write a libretto? For oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. We can make it a whole uh, opera box score Please. collaboration. Oh, because that'd be amazing. Because it is operatic in a kind of funny way. You know, I but mean, just, you know. we, we're, uh, Mark, this is Oliver Camacho here. Um, hey. I want to just say before we run out of time that um, I was in the audience for the Chicago Fringe Opera production of uh, As One, and I was so moved by this work. I, you know, I really needed in that, whatever that day, I needed something cathartic. And I was really, really touched by it. And uh, yeah, that it was very effective as a piece of theater, but also, also as an opera. And it just makes me feel a little bit that like you said a couple minutes ago that we need to be more, uh, more like musical theater, maybe, you know, to uh, reach today's audiences. But I actually thought that as one was very operatic in a very operatic model. So well, and and that's that's fine, but the truth is that when it when it comes down to writing an opera about a transgender person, an audience comes in with so many um, fears, you know, and 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 misconceptions about what a transgender person is. That one of my jobs in co-writing the libretto with Kimberly Reed, who is transgender, was to break down those perceptions and those fears and to say she's just human and one of the ways to do that of course is with humor mm. um and i think that's what has made the opera resonate for audiences is that they come in they're a little bit worried and then they realize that hannah the main character of as one is completely like them um she's she's no different and so i'm i'm, I'm very pleased the chicago fringe opera did a terrific job amy hutchinson directed and i you know, it, it, it's an honor when these companies choose to do as one. It, it, it's thrilling to me. Um, I don't know. I hate, to, I hate when people, you know, we now overuse that word. Um, I'm humbled. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think it. It, it, it can be a contender for one of the operas of our generation. Yes. It, well, <laughs> it's, it's, who knows that? Um, I mean, it's, but, yeah. Um, but thank you. That's very kind. It makes me very happy. Um, you know, I, it's, 
it's just nice when opera can maybe change people and make them think of something different. That's what I love about Silent Night is that it makes people ask, why do we keep going to war? Why does this keep happening? Um, I'm Elizabeth Cree, I think, in a very perverse way, says, why are women treated this way? But that's a whole other radio show. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth Cree opened last Saturday. There are two more shows this coming Friday night and Sunday afternoon. Tickets at Chicago Opera Theater, T-H-E-A-T-E-R. Dot com. Mark Campbell, thank you so much for your time on My the show. My pleasure, guys. Thank you so much. All right. Ciao. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. He is one of the defining librettists of this century. That's not yeah. hyperbole. That's not sucking yeah. up. That's a like fact. Him and Royce Vavrick have taken all the work. <laughs> exactly. exactly. For, for better. For yeah. better. The golden age of chamber opera. Maybe we're living in it right yeah. now. Hey, big news coming out of Santa Fe Opera this week. You're going to get it in the two-minute drill. That's next on America's Talk Radio Show about opera, only on WNUR 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Give me 60 more seconds of your time so I can share a secret with you. When I tell people about Opera Box Score, they always ask, how come we're a live talk radio show, not just a podcast? The answer? We want to give listeners like you the chance to call into our show and have your opinion heard live on air. It's easy. Stream our show live on WNUR.org slash pop-up on Mondays at 9 p.m. Central Time. Then give us a call during the broadcast with your take on what we're talking about. The number? 847-866-WNUR. Wait, do people even have letters on their phones anymore? 847-866-9687. Talk to you later. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time for everything you need to know. From the past week in opera land in less than two minutes, Hungary's state opera company has defended itself against charges of racism after it staged Gershwin's Porgy and Bess with a largely white cast in open defiance of the wishes of its composers. The German Alexander Neef, who's 43, is the general manager of the Canadian Opera Company. Last Friday, he joined a new triumvirate in charge of Santa Fe Opera, along with music director Harry Bickett and Robert K. Maya as the general director. Austin Opera announced earlier this month that it has, quote, terminated the employment contract of principal conductor and artistic director Richard Buckley, effective immediately, end quote. That was following an investigation conducted by the company and outside counsel that revealed, quote, inappropriate behavior in violation of the company's policy on harassment. John Copley's distinguished career seems unaffected by Peter Gelb's firing of him this month at the Met. It's been announced that Copley, who's 84, will direct a new production of Mozart's The Abduction from the Seraglio at the Grange Festival in England later this summer. Sergio Morabito, who's the head dramaturg of Oper Stuttgart, will join the Vienna State Opera in the same position in October. And on this day, February 12th, it's the birthday of Italian director and designer Franco Zeffirelli. He's 95. That's your two-minute drill.
Opera Class, Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Giovanna Jacques. What? Whoa. Is my name Giovanna now? No, 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 it's not. Giovanna is our special guest in the studio tonight. (laughs) You've never looked better, Giovanna. Thank you, thank you. I love the beard. Oh, yeah, I've been working on it. No, and actually, it's Weston Williams over there in the studio. (laughs) You mean Weston Williams? I need to, clearly, I need to update that. We need to record your name, and we'll get get Norm on that as well. Hey, Norm, can you come over here for a second? Um, (laughs) Well, Weston, let's start with you, actually, on two minutes. A drill. All right, all right. What, which of these stories has got your dander up? Um, well, I'm very interested in uh, the Porgy and Bess story coming out oh, of Hungary. Gosh. It is uh, quite a this mess, quite a tangle. Um, and, and there's a couple levels to it. Um, uh, and uh, a disclaimer, two disclaimers. This is a whole show talking about this <laughs> opera. <laughs> exactly. Two disclaimers. I am very, very incredibly white yep. uh, for you listeners listening at home. Uh, second, I am not Hungarian. And uh, to I'm kind of understand the, uh, the sort of the, uh, the, the milieu around this uh, opera, it's, it, it really does depend on the current state of Hungarian politics. So, so, so basically what's happened is, is that um, Hungarian uh, state opera has, um, has basically put together uh, this production, um, t- taking, taking, uh, taking the, uh, the, the action out of Catfish Row in South Carolina and putting it into an airport uh, where, where, they, where instead there are refugees waiting to uh, go from one place to another, um, which, is, which is, you know, in its, it kind of an interesting concept, but of course then you get to the problems of, you know, the, the, the Gershwins wanted this to be uh, about uh, an all-black, they wanted an all-black all cast. Right. Um, obviously early on in Europe, the first casts were white actors in blackface, but in, in the uh, U.S. it was pretty always faithfully black actors about this very specific point in very specifically American history. Um, and, uh, and, um, you know, there's always, there's a little bit of an issue. Some people are raising the point that Hungary is not, uh, America in, uh, in the time period that it was being written in, right. uh, is particularly with the refugee crisis. It's a very relevant issue, something that art should be tackling. However, um, there's also the sort of the, uh, in Hungary right now, the, 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 Two party, the multiple party system is basically dissolved, and it's basically now under single party rule of a right, far right wing party. And there are accusations that this opera is aiding that sort of uh, party, which of course has pretty racist overtones. Apparently, right leaning newspapers in that country have called out the requirement that uh, it be an all black cast and Porgy and Bess to be uh, to be quote politically in uh, politically political correctness run amok, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, and it's, uh, and of course, that is, I, I think that's pretty bogus. However, it looks like the opera company itself has denied that they're doing anything to support the right-leaning uh, current regime over there, and it's uh, it's just a big old mess. Well, there has been some publicity materials that went out with that saying that this is an unauthorized production. Yeah, they're they actually legally required to do that um, because... Uh, because The estate of the Gershwins. Yeah, yeah, the estate of the Gershwins say, say, says that you have to have the all-black okay. cast. So in times like this, with this is a really thorny production, and it's a shame that neither of the two stories where we're getting this from, The Guardian or The New York Times 
talk at all about the actual performance. Mm. But I do have a guiding principle when it comes to modernized productions or adaptations of productions. Okay, go ahead. If the music, if the what's happening on stage serves the music, I'm okay with it. And since I can't learn from any of these articles whether or not the performance are actually good and faithful and stylistically appropriate, I can't say if this was a mistake or not. You know? Right. I, it, it... When I was reading it, I, I did kind of get the sense of, like, I really need to see this show yeah. to understand what exactly is going on. I also kind of need to get a, have a class on Hungarian contemporary politics to really, <laughs> to really fully uh, get Why there. Why don't you do that? You get back to us, and I'll work on uh, the okay, diversity scale. For <laughs> I'll, I'll be watching daytime TV. Uh, it, it's interesting to me that a right-wing government would use the state opera company to advance its I mean in some racist ways agenda. I'm almost envious of that you know <laughs> you know what I mean like like just cuz in the US you know you you get there's so little respect but you know the farther right. east you get in Europe you do see yeah. more and more of yeah. that uh, yeah. particularly in Russia you definitely see um, those there's so much that revolves around what's happening in the opera houses. You know, Putin's always involved. He shows up to performances. Yeah, okay. uh, and, uh, I mean, of course, in, in one respect, it's, it, I mean, it, it's awful. But at the same time, you know, you are seeing some sort of, there is this, there's like, oh, the fine arts can be a political tool to be used or misused. Can you imagine the NRA being like, we're going to support this production of Flyshots? I know. <laughs> That that is the funniest okay. thing I've ever heard. <laughs> really? Thank you, George. Uh, okay. uh, oh my God! That, I just that would be so <laughs> one for making West so strange to me. Um, this uh, triumvirate at Santa Fe Opera. What what a fantastic idea! First of all, look. Well, that's like an old, very old model for how to run an opera company, and we were getting away from it. You know, like I feel like at the Met right now. We have one person who's like making all the decisions. You and know? well, hey man, look where that got us. I right? Know. Checks yeah. and balances, baby. Yeah, that's yeah, what that's yeah. what it's all about. Uh, it, it's funny to me that one man, Charles McKay, who's been at Santa Fe for years and years, is now being replaced by three men to do his <laughs> to do his job. I think this is a fantastic I idea. I, I, I think the way that you split up into three branches, which are artistic, music, and financial. And oh, right. Oh, it, <laughs> I uh, I just I just love this idea. I'm not thrilled that like Alexander Neef is going to remain at COC during the academic year and then go to Santa Fe during What's the summer. What's wrong with that? You you know me, man. I I just think that people should he's share the wealth. He's a proven leader and the and he's a hero in the Canadian opera scene. You know, he's I, like he's like Justin Trudeau of opera. I under I understand that. I just and he's a good looking guy. He dresses really nice. So. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that's 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 what matters. No, it really does. Um, <laughs> but I'm a big fan of Harry Bickett. Uh, Harry Bickett, I think, is one of the great conductors for different styles of music, especially early music played by a modern orchestra and French. Uh, I he's like my, my go-to guy. So all you can say is that this company is not going to take a step backwards when they pass over the batons. I mean, the programming is going to be as compelling as ever. The music standards are going to be as high as ever. And the money is going to keep flowing in. And uh, they still have to deal with that casino problem. We haven't heard of yeah. yeah, that. Yeah, so. nah, that's, yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, that, that's not something that uh, three people are going to be able to I don't know comic books really well. Is anybody here a comic book comic book person? Okay. 
Well, I'm trying to think I'm of like. I'm surprised at you, Weston, <laughs> shrugging over I'm there. Sorry, no, you're, you're the white fair. guy, like of a certain age. So, um, I feel like Weston re- reads yeah, Marvel been, yeah. all the time. Anyway, man. for those of you who read Between comics, what is the equivalent of like a triumvirate? Like, what are the three heroes? Like, oh, that's easy. I can do that. What is that? Uh, Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman. No, I'm saying who's Boom. like like Avengers or like X Men? Like they they work in the in threes. You know? I think I think there's literally uh, I think there's a little that's those three and they have like yeah. I think they're called like the Trinity or something. They have their own little comic book skin and. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. And the Holy Ghost. Yeah. You know who also is a superhero? John Copley. Oh yeah, yeah. Got fired yeah. from the Met, and now and he's he's, he's, he's already going back. On. Bounced for back real fast. This is, I mean, what that shows you, and this is aside from the union having some problems about the way he was fired. That's a whole another story. Is that, you know, real talent will out, and all these people stepping up to bat for him and vouching for him is is going to carry the day and the guy's going to keep working at 84 no less the guy's going to keep working and this round two goes to copley who knows if there's going to be a round three well i mean this is we didn't really ever finish talking about that story because it just broken when we talked about it but uh it's not really clear what actually happened in that rehearsal room and what john copley said we know he made some off-color remark but uh, there's many different reports about what actually happened right. and who he was talking about, especially since mm-hmm. he supposedly was referring to Ildar Azbrazakov, and the character that was mentioned in that comment wasn't the character being played by Ildar Azbrazakov. There's a lot of it's mysterious, but um, you know I think you know obviously Peter Gelb overcorrected, and I think maybe there should be some kind of acknowledgement that you know Peter Gelb should like step up and say, look, like maybe I overreacted. You know, I don't mean to disparage John Copley, but now maybe he feels like he he has to just like stay double down and like not, you know, not admit that he made a mistake. Uh, you know, don't hold, pride, don't hold you your know? breath, man. If you're waiting yeah. for an apology from yeah. from Peter, Peter Gell, that's yeah. it's that's definitely not going to happen. Franco Zeffirelli talking of old people. Franco Zeffirelli is 95. I had to look up whether or not he was dead. Yeah, I was surprised by that too. I mean, he's uh he's hey, does he? When was the last time he actually did an opera production? Well, this is the problem, is that all of his shows are constantly being revived, yeah. so you never really know, uh, <laughs> like, if it's... Every opera house in America has at least one Zeffirelli production in the back somewhere in the basement, yeah, exactly. they just need to dig it out and dust um, off the cobwebs. I mean, here we go. Opera Base, my, go. my go-to place. In the last five years, he has not done a new production anywhere in the last five years. Mm. Lots of revivals. I don't know if he's directing these revivals. He's doing the sets as well. He does have pretty sets. If you like that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if you like, if you like La Boheme with like every, um, what are Everyone they called? Everyone in Paris? Giocatoli, El Giocatoli di Parpignol, right? Aren't the little, the little Parpignol's toys? Yeah. Am I getting that right? Like if you like a <laughs> whole, if you like every little toy and every little napkin folded and all mm-hmm. that, that's, that's that kind yeah, of I love the folded napkins. Yeah, that's that's what I go mean, to like, the opera for. Having a restaurant experience, like you've really got to fold a napkin. So. <laughs> it should be, t- it should go take out yeah. on that. On that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> 95 years old. How about that? Um, and shout out to Sergio Morabito, who um, he's the head dramaturg in Stuttgart, moving over to the Wiener Staatsoper. The reason for that, of course, is that the incoming director, Bogdan Roschich, has virtually no experience working in an opera house at all. So he needs he needs He'll need some coaching. He, ca- yeah. he came from, this is going to sound familiar, he came from a record label just like Gelb. 
<laughs> Gelbus felt fared better. But uh, that's why you bring in a big dramaturg like Morbito to back up. Before we run out of time, I just want to shout out to the cast of Elixir of Love uh, from the HD broadcast. Um, this was the production that originally starred Anna Trepko with the stupid top hat. Uh, I, the, the production is ridiculous. Well, really, the hat is ridiculous. But um, Pretty Yendi, or Pre- Pretty Yende, uh, as Adina, Matthew Ponzani as uh, Nemorino, Ildebraldo uh, Ar- D'Arcangelo as uh, Dr. What's his name? Dr. That Guy. Yeah. I always forget. The Dottore, whatever uh, his name is. Um, yeah. Dulcamara? Yeah, Dulcamara. <laughs> and a yeah. beautiful, Nailed beautiful it. Italian baritone named uh, Davide Luciano as Belcore. It was a fun show. And... Uh, Pretty Yende really brought it, and the audience nice. loved her, but I was swooning over this Davide guy. So. That's a nice shout-out, Oliver. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Time to wrap it up. Over to Oliver Camacho. So I often kind of recommend things that are happening in the city, uh, but for once, this is something that you can all participate in. Uh, this Saturday, uh, February 17th at 7.30, uh, America's Paradise from Darkness to Light is a recital to benefit hurricane relief and recovery efforts in the U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico, mm. uh, organized by soprano Laura Strickling. Uh, I happen to be singing a little bit on this concert, but that's not why I want you to check it out. Uh, you can go to the website, americasparadise, all one word, dot U.S., where we'll be live streaming the performance this Saturday if you can attend. And please do what you can uh, to donate. I don't have money. I'm an artist. I'm a singer. I'm a podcaster. And the only way I can help this effort is by performing and also by spreading the word. It's a great call. A couple uh, good things for me. Snow days. They're just fantastic. We got a snow day last Friday here in Chicago. Kids were off school, went sledding, made some headway on the Valentine's cards. I and went sledding. By yourself? Yeah, it was, it was really lonely and kind of weird. Okay, yeah, I would... Also in preparation for Valentine's Day. (laughs) Oh, Weston. Hey, Mardi Gras, of course, tomorrow as well. Man, I don't know if I could party that hard. I love New Orleans, but I I, I don't know if I could do that. Hey, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager of WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And you can leave a review when you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera when you laissez le bon temps rouler. That's uh, French, Weston. We're back on Monday, February 19 at 9 p.m. Central when Oliver goes inside the huddle with baritone Anthony Clark Evans. Do not miss that. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Chicago Sound Experiment.